From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to the show. Two-hour edition. We're back to full speed, full length, coming to you via Zoom as we have been since March. We've got the whole team here. Eric Bradlow is there, Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen. This is Cade Massey. We do this every week, talking sports analytics during the pandemic. We've also been talking COVID analytics. Spend the first quarter kind of setting the context for these sports and to some extent our lives, of course. Gentlemen, hello. Good afternoon. Welcome back. How are you guys doing? Good afternoon. Yeah. Doing well. Doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. I, I'm, I'm doing better. I'm just waiting for the Buccaneers to be at the top of Massey Peabody. I'm starting to question Massey Peabody. Peabody. I don't know what's going on here. Uh, it, it's it's very dubious. It's a dubious little fly by night outfit. There's no there's no reliability there. I wouldn't worry about it too much. Uh, we <laughs> will talk about Bucks. We will talk about Massey Peabody before now. Before then, in the first quarter, we want to hear a little bit about coronavirus and maybe on the election. The last couple of weeks, we've been, we've indulged some election analytics as well. We are exactly one week away from the election as we record on Tuesday afternoon. We will do a show on election day. It'll post the the morning after. Um, but uh, I'm curious on both fronts, guys, let's start with coronavirus. What in COVID-19 has caught your eye in the last week? It's looking grim. <laughs> it's looking grim. I mean, I, I just uh, talked to some uh, friends of mine who live in the Czech Republic. They've gone back and they're going back into lockdown. Um, you know, in France, they're doing cur- curfews now. Um, and obviously things are not looking all that particularly great across the U.S. right now either. Right. Well, the, the U.S. is actually many U.S.'s or I mean, we call them states, I suppose. Um, I don't know how distinct that makes the United States from, say, France, how divided and and how how the spread of the virus looks so differently. Because in the United States, you know, New York um, doesn't really look any different than it's looked in the, since the last six months. Um, Pennsylvania, we're seeing it. We are seeing an uptick here. Um, but it's hard to, and it's not really large. It's not really a spike. We don't see, we don't see increases in hospitalizations, for example. Um, but huge swaths of the country that didn't get hit at all, like rural areas, are really starting to get pounded. And, uh, and, that's, uh, and so this is, I would almost call this just a long, giant extension of the first wave. No, and I mean, this is kind of how I would argue, I, I, this is how I've been arguing it for a while now, that, oh, you know, that we, it, it hasn't really been the case in the U.S. yet that we've sort of seen a real substantial second wave in a particular location. As you sort of said, the waves we've sort of seen is just it hitting the first wave in different parts of the country at different times. But what's happening in Europe right now does suggest that second waves definitely do happen. So um, well, I mean, seasonal alone and school, sc- school and weather as a the season as a function of school and weather would dick would would suggest this. I mean, all the models said that things were going to spike in September. I mean, back in April, the model said things were going to spike in September. And here we go. We're just riding that spike. Yeah, I think the concern that's been raised, which if you look at the just even the aggregate data pattern was that after the first big spike in April slash May, the daily cases went down to 20,000. Then we saw kind of a spike. And then the daily cases went down to 40,000 basically was the baseline. So the concern that I've heard raised is that the trough, if you'd like, the second time now is twice the trough of the first time. Now, that doesn't imply that the peak's going to be twice as high, but it certainly is some evidence that the peak, is, and this is what everyone has forecast, that the peak is likely to be higher. Obviously, we've just set the new one-week record. If you take a seven-day moving average, 
the number of cases is higher than it's ever been. And there's no reason to believe the number of cases won't continue to go up. Now the question is, this is a question, have we learned about therapeutics? Have we learned about, is this affecting a different population? As we've talked about many times, it's a mixture distribution, not just spatial heterogeneity, which Adi was talking about somewhat, but in some sense, um, gender, uh, age group, um, heterogeneity, so that the hope is that at least the death rate will be considerably lower than we've seen in the past. Um, the hospitalization rate, though, seems like it's pretty high right now, but hopefully the death rate will be lower. Just real quickly on hospitalizations. I mean, there are capacity constraints and some places are beginning to hit them. So for example, and this is just anecdotal, but I know that uh, in Lubbock, they had, to, they had to suspend elective surgeries. So they hit a certain, they hit a number as dictated by the state government. If you hit that number, you have to stop elective surgeries and they've hit that number. And at least- well, El Paso, at least they've announced that they're at a hundred percent hospital and ICU capacity. They have no more capacity. And the other part, which was possibly the saddest time that I heard about was in the entire state of Utah, um, an actual person running a healthcare system used the word rationing, that oh, they wow. would actually have to choose who to actually provide services to based on a very fixed capacity at this point. You know, that's something that people worried about a lot up front. We heard some stories about it and from Italy in particular, but I, I'm going to, until we actually see that happening, I know we, sh we, we should plan against it, but it, it's such a loaded word that until it's, until it's actually happening, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to hold off on reacting to it. Cause well, let me, sure. I just add in, if you think about it, Sweden didn't even allow their, they have their, nursing home residents to even go into the hospital. So if you look, I remember early on looking at, uh, at their, their reported cases, deaths and hospitalizations. And there was this giant gap in hospitalizations compared to deaths as if people were just dying at home. And it turns out that's exactly what was going on. Um, Sweden had a very, very simple, if you're over 85 and in a nursing home, it was palliative the whole way. They did not even attempt to do any, any, um, any wow. cure. Um, and so hold on. Why would one decide that one? It, one, it's it's about the individual patient and uh, an allocation of resources, but it's also about not wanting to bring the infection in. Is it also that? It's also the, a sense that that heroic measures at, uh, is not something that they sort of systematically do as a society, and that's something that we do systematically as a society, unless you don't want it that, as a, I, you know. I think Adi's making a great point here because, you know, people have said, and this is, by the way, it's a societal choice. It's not a judgmental thing. As Adi pointed mm -hmm. out, I forget the number, but it's, Adi knows, it's probably something like 90 or 95% of your lifetime healthcare costs happen in the last six months yep. of your life. And mm -hmm. so, you know, societies can decide, we as a society can't afford 90% of the healthcare costs for the last six months of someone's life. It's a policy decision in some sense. And then healthcare costs would go down in that way. Mm -hmm. Yes. Listen, my, my mom died four years ago and she was very, she was quite adamant that she did not want heroic measures. Um, and there were men, many that were proposed. They were not going to fundamentally extend her life. It would just mean that the period at the end would be very invasive and difficult. And she didn't but want it. So lots of individuals make those choices, um, and and that's a great place for that decision. But it's interesting to me the extent to which we don't have these policy decisions, really. We, we don't have the policy discussions much as a country. It is a policy question. No. We don't have it. Rather, norms emerge and culture emerges. And so I have this kind of visceral reaction. 
at least my initial reaction to Sweden's policy is kind of visceral, but that's that's because I've been raised and around a very different culture, and, and we are very much about you know do all you can. No, and 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 I, and I think I think people are kind of you know in America the 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 ethos is much more that that is in fact a very private decision you know that each individual yes. should be able to make um and 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 a lot of the kind of fear or or kind of visceral reaction I think comes from the idea that this would be somehow a state mandated sort of decision instead of an individual one. Uh, not to no, I, I did want to kind of bring us back to um, the issue of tracking cases. This is very difficult um, to do historically because of the kinds of uh, ways that we test now. And I think once September rolled around, we instituted these incredibly um, widespread weekly testing protocols among kids and in school, colleges, uh, elementary schools, people involved in sporting events. And this has led to uh, some portion of the surge has been definitely traced to a massive, massive increase in testing. So I actually did some tracking. And, and one of the things that, that's nice to do is to track deaths because it, it's, it's pretty hard. It's, hard, hard to, it, it, it's, it's somewhat constant. And one thing is that, is that it, it, it lags behind, but it doesn't have the same slope. Um, so if you see a large increase in cases, you will eventually see an increase in deaths, but it could have a very different slope. And, and that, sh- that changes over time. Okay, so, uh, Eric, I want you to jump in, but, but I want to put a pin in this issue of testing being responsible for the increased number of cases. Because uh, people can parse that statistically, I, I believe, and they do. And if it's a, everyone's talking about the spike, some politicians want to put that on testing. And so, it, so Adi just put out the possibility that, that some of it is testing. So the, only, at least- the only data that I've seen on this is an aggregate. Adi may have more disaggregated data where the uh, rate of testing has gone up somewhere in the seven to 10 percent range, which nowhere near meets the rate of growth of the number of cases. And so every public health official, biostatistician, data scientist that I've seen talk about it says, of course, it partially explains the growth that we've seen, but not even, uh, I mean, you can, anybody can use the word significant. It's a loaded word. Obviously there's a statistical definition, but in society, it's not like it's half of the explanation of the increased number of cases. Let me, let me, let me bounce back at that. Um, you want to compare the, say, let's say this is the third surge. Okay. Let's call it that. There was the first wave in March and April, then there's another wave. And now it's the other wave. It has been going up slowly, the testing. But if you look at the testing numbers, now compared to what they were in each of those previous surges, it's astronomically different. So yes, this surge is a real surge. It's not made up of, it's not fake. <laughs> it's not coming from, from testing. But if you try to compare the sizes of the three, then you actually have a, a very big difference. Actually, I was in, doing in a within surge calculation, not a cross surge calculation. Yes, right, right. I was, I was just comparing within this current surge that we're seeing What's the change in testing rate over the last two to three weeks? What's the increase in cases? Yes. So, so, right. So it, it is genuine and, and only a small portion can be attributed to, but if you want to compare it to say the previous ones, that's, that's where it becomes uh, difficult. Totally right? different so, calculation. So, so just as a number to throw it out, I mean, New York never had more than 2000 cases a day. Uh, Florida was hitting 15,000 in, in, you know, in, in its peak. Yet New York was turning out uh, thousands of, I'm sorry, it's thousands of deaths. In one day, they had a thousand deaths in, in more in just New York City. Um, we haven't seen anything like that. So you, you have to look within the surge to see, you know, relative so to couple, previous time. 
for monitoring what's really going on then and, and making it apples to apples, there are a couple different ways you could go about it. One is start at the end downstream with deaths because that's so much more reliable a measure. But the other is that you can estimate cases based on what you know about the percentage of the population who actually, who, who are getting it and who are testing. And, um, and we saw a lot of that early on when people were unsure, like there's a lot of unreported cases out there was the big concern and people had statistical models for estimating that. I assume we can still do that. And maybe that helps compare these in some way, Eric. Yeah, no, no. I was going to say it's related to it, but I think also another thing that I've, another study I saw recently, I, I, I put it on our sheet. There was a small study, very small study in JAMA during the American Medical Association, obviously very reputable journal. It's only of a hundred patients but basically showed that maybe we're too narrowly thinking about the effects of COVID. This particular case uh, article showed that 70 plus percent of COVID survivors, so this is of people who survive, have detectable heart issues. And I say detectable. That means either from a, you know, a test done directly on their heart or something that you could measure through someone's blood work that indicates some sort of heart ailment. So I'm going to yeah. say that number again. I understand it's a small sample, 70%. But, but Eric, but th- we talked about this thing months ago whenever the, the Big Ten was suspending football, for example, because all this stuff had just come out that there were potential heart consequences. And Adi, Adi said something along the lines, look, we always have heart issues with viruses. And so I'm, my question is, okay, detectable change in heart, is that just the kind of thing that you would see in a virus? Now, what I don't know, that's a great question. What I don't know is if you looked at, you know, some flu or something else, um, how, what would that baseline fraction look like? Let's ignore the right. small sample nature of it, et cetera. Right. Um, at least the way I, I'll go back and look at the article. The way it read was this is astronomically higher than I you guess would I'm, observe. I'm, I'm skeptical. We're kind of at an intermediate moment now. We've had hundreds of thousands of people, millions who have had this thing, and we haven't seen a rash of hospitalizations due to heart issues. I didn't say hospitalizations, by the way. I, I know, I, I know. But we just, of all heart issues, which okay. could be, again, could be an indicator that there's going to be a longer run effect of this. And by the way, similar to the longer run effect, another related topic, which is also into the COVID spaces, besides these, a new study just came out today in the UK that said that besides that people's antibodies go down dramatically over time. Well, they, they be- do. That doesn't mean they're not, in, they're not ineffective. Uh, they stop being effective. But I'm going to just point back, push back on two things. First of all, a lot of my doctor friends have educated me over, the, over this year about when I quote a medical journal. And I learned that there's an enormous difference between JAMA and JAMA Network. And the, and the study that you, you um, quoted is from JAMA Network. And JAMA, so JAMA, this is a brilliance. JAMA is a, is a, is a Journal of Medic- Medical Association. I think you're being sight-shamed, Eric. You're being sight-shamed. Uh, well, I, I made the same mistake myself. Um, it's, not the, it's, it's, does it, it's, it's not JAMA. It, and JAMA actually bought a lot of these, net, these journals. And they're, they're actually for-profit journals. Oh, wow. um, and this is something that we as, we as, as, as almost gatekeepers of, of, of science, I mean, I always like to think of statisticians as the umpires. And, you know, we are the ones who, you know, you're out, you're safe. Nope, that's not, a, you know, that's statistically insignificant. That's not, you know, um, and there's a, it's not that it's necessarily wrong, but, but there's a study like this in particular can have lots and lots of uh, problems um, that would not allow it into JAMA, which, um, and therefore gets published sort of on the sideshows. 
man, this is, there's a big topic here on, and yeah. this is just so important in our lives. He's like, what sources of information do you trust? Like, where do you get your information? How do you know how to filter? It is peer reviewed though. I do see gem and network. It is. It yeah. Is. And I mean, we've, we've been seeing this often. This is not like an uh, one study in isolation. I, I, I think we're seeing an accumulation of medical evidence that there are potentially that there are heart issues coming out of this, whether they're long-term heart issues or not, I think is probably oh, really? still The question is how prevalent it is, not, not whether or not, but how prevalent it is, how does it compare to the baseline that you'd see in, in general flus? And the real issue is, um, particularly with a lot of these studies, is where'd you get the data and how does it, re- who's it representative of? Um, and that's generally the hardest part about doing a medical study is the generalization phase. How do you take the people no. that you looked at and then try to make a conclusion about other people from that? Well, no, and I, and I mean, like, I just to, just to kind of push back on your pushback, you know, <laughs> 70% is very, very, very high. So, yeah, I mean, and it's probably the ceiling on the actual kind of true value. And like, maybe it's lower, but it has to get a lot lower before it's not a big no, concern. But I'm, I'm, I'm pushing right? back on the pushback of the pushback. It's 70% of what? Of whom? Well, in this case of the individuals in the study. But, but, is a, <laughs> yeah. but, but, but Eric led the whole thing by talking about it being a relatively small study. So it's, it's one more signal. It's one more study in the pool. And we'll continue to make sense of it as we collect more studies. Speaking of sampling, we've got this little vote happening next week. And there's lots of attempts to understand what's going to happen. Have you, has anything caught your eye in election analytics, election forecasts in the, the last week? As, as we sit here, well, a week before, 538's forecast has been pretty steady. Right now, it's at 88% Biden. Yep. And so I don't know what other forecast you look at markets. Where are the markets right now? I have been. And I've been looking big. at both the betting markets. Um, I've been looking at things like uh, both betting markets, like things that take averages of them. Real clear politics is another one. There's a lot of them. Those have been pretty stable also in the, let's call it 63 to 65, 66% range. Matter of fact, even remember last week, I told you I'd take an unweighted average of the two. Um, That unweighted average I said was 75%. Nothing would have changed to this week. Um, Mm -hmm. And so you go back to what caught my eye, it's, uh, Kate, it's the same thing as before, which is two things. One is the remarkable stability that these polls have had. And number two, in aggregate, some states have shifted, which I could talk about. The second would be that um, in some sense, the um, it was an interesting thing on 538. So let's imagine you forecast. This is, this is a very important point for our listeners. Let's imagine your forecast right now was that Biden was going to get 320 electoral votes. Let's say that was your forecast, okay? Whatever it is, 320. You need 270 to win. Let's imagine you say he's not going to win Pennsylvania. So most people would say, well, this is obvious. 320 minus 20 is 300. No. So what 538 has done is they've built a simulator that says, okay, wait a second here. If 538 predicts that he should win Pennsylvania by 5.2%, and all of a sudden you're telling me he loses it, well, there's probably a correlation between Pennsylvania and other states. So now they actually have a great simulator that shows the shift in probabilities of a whole bunch of other states. So you can't just say Pennsylvania's out, take the number, subtract 20. You have to look at the probabilistic impact and they now have a simulator that does that it yes. literally as you drag the slider down in one state it pulls other states down in a in a in a relation that's uh, that depends on how much correlation there is that, that is exactly right it. and I, they, I will, 
Yep. Sorry. I will say, so Andrew Gelman, one of our colleagues at Columbia, who really studies um, electoral votes as for a living, among among other things, he's a Bayesian statistician that all of us know fairly well. Um, He actually tried to take that apart. He, um, and he's discovered that it has, that what they've done is add correlated normal random variables. Um, And that actually has some very weird properties um, because it's not a correlated normals. It's, it's this, we, in fact, we don't really understand the correlation structure, but it is, it is extremely correlated. And that has to do with the, the, the revealed bias. I mean, the problem with the, with the polls, the reason why they, we suspect, I mean, all the, all the percentages are, are all speaking one, one, th- one, one way. Biden's got this and got it pretty easily. But we somehow collectively don't believe it because there's some amount of bias. And that bias, once we start to reveal it through, for example, knowing what happens in Pennsylvania, is probably going to be bias that is more or less similar in other in other states. Well, that's Adi, so what, what I said. What real, I said. Real, real quick clarification: When you're saying bias, you mean yeah, what do you, this, what, this, what, the whole system is leaning one way or the other, but we don't know which way. More that's or less, what, that's basic, and that's what happened last time in a bunch of key states. There was there was a mismatch. I mean, Pennsylvania was predicted before the election to go to Clinton by six point five percent. That's no, no, that's not true. It was down to by the time of the election, it was three point seven percent, and with so, a lot more, with a lot higher undecided proportion. Well, that, I was going to—that's what I was going to get to, Shane. Okay. Is that that there's there's lot so many differences again. It could still happen. There were so many differences between statistically between last time and this one. Number one, the stability of the polls, which Cade talked about. In other words, 538's prediction has been 85 to 88% for the last three weeks. It has not moved. Number two, Clinton and Trump were both below 50%, significantly below 50%. In all of the states that 538 has predicted, whether it's Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Florida, um, North Carolina, et cetera, Trump, uh, Clinton, sorry, Biden is predicted above 50%. Are Number you implying that there's more undecided, fewer undecideds now? Much is that fewer. Yeah. As a matter of fact, it's been, uh, I'll tell you the number, the number, at least going into the last election in the last week, it was 12% in 2016. And the reported numbers are somewhere between four and 5% this time. And so what happened in the last election, Adi, was that they broke basically two to one to um, Trump, which led to an eight to four split of those undecided voters, which shifted things about 4%. And it shifted it 4% in certain states that made Trump be able to win. The two things that have people less thought, less thinking that that would happen this time also is just also the number of people that are going to vote this time is also a much, much larger fraction of the populace. And so another thing that adds uncertainty, not necessarily bias, but maybe, is who's going to show up and vote. That's another thing. Is that Who's going to be out. allowed to vote? Well, that's... Well, a, who, who's going to vote and not have them counted? This is kind of my sources of uncertainty that I certainly are not being built into any kind of forecasting model that I've seen. Well, yeah, that's why turnout is... Yeah. It's not just that. It's the the one people have moved towards more early and absentee voting over time and so we've got this non-stationary target we're trying to forecast the pandemic exacerbates that and it complicates um you know voting regulations in various places around the country and they're being used as a tool in various places so there are lots of uncertainties about turnout not just overall levels but whether this is one thing that silver says that i don't like he says look you know it, it doesn't matter that much because it's not, it doesn't privilege one side more than the other. And that's not true if 
if there, if it's being used as a tool more by one side than it is the other side. But all I'm saying is that there are more variables in play about turnout than there ever have been before. By well, I mean, I, I'll just add to what you're saying is certainly the Democrats and have really pushed for early voting and vote by mail. <laughs> far, far greater numbers than, than uh, the Republicans have, which has led to, and the reason why they're doing this is, is a practical consideration, um, is that they're, a, they're concerned that on the day of the election, there will be understaff, understaffing at polls, and they're because of COVID, the usual volunteers won't be there. There'll be very long lines. And there'll be two polling places. And the people just will get fed up and not vote and or not even bother to show up at all. And that the most uh, practical way to address this is with early voting and vote by mail. Actually, actually, I think I think there's a they're, they're almost the same when you when you early vote, you're really just depositing your 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 vote by mail in, in a in a in a in a. It's a little more, it's more, a little more reliable than putting in the mailbox these days. Right. Sure. It's, it's not actually, I, I always thought the early voting meant you, you walked into a booth and pulled a lever. It's not, that's not how it works. Right. Right. <laughs> so one, one, one quick observation about polls. I think it's a nice little correction for us. Our colleague and friend Don Moore over at the Haas school at Berkeley just published a study with a former student of his on how accurate polls are because they always report a plus minus, right. And that's supposed to be the 95% accuracy. So this is, <laughs> Classic Don Moore, because he studies overconfidence, goes out and assesses the actual calibration. It turns out they're 60% confident. They should be, they hit it, they're accurate 60% of the time when they say they're 95% confident. And his, his rule of thumb is double the confidence interval, double that plus minus error bar they offer in order to get a true 95%. And th- this is really interesting as we get, I mean, I think it's one more reason to you know, not hold on too tightly to these forecasts because there's just are, more. Oh, wait, can I just clarify? Are, are, is he saying that that intervals that are supposed to be 95% in their coverage are actually 60% in their coverage? Yes. Or is yes. he saying that uh, something else? So that, I think you're, that's my understanding of what he's saying. Okay. Yeah, I mean, and we don't necessarily have to get in the weeds, but how is he establishing the truth? The election. We well, yeah, but I mean, you do a poll in like mid-August. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. like like opinions change, so I'm yeah. not quite yeah. sure. Like, I mean, polls are not gonna are gonna be miscalibrated. Right. So Don, so Don looked at it over time, and the last one was a week before, and so the okay. the ninety five sixty observation is from a week before. So I got very, you. Okay, it's cool. a very fair point from Shane. All right, guys, that's the next time we're talking election. It will be election day. So get your forecast ready with. We've settled for probabilities so far, but we're going to have to go on the record for our electoral vote predictions a week from today. So get ready for that. That has been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have three quarters. to. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the second quarter now with the whole team, Cade Massey, Adi Weiner, Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen, just done talking election analytics and before that pandemic analytics. How about some sports gentlemen? Do you guys watch any sports lately? Any sports to talk about? Anything going on? <laughs> Shane is, is grinning from ear to ear. <laughs> I'll let him start. <laughs> well, I mean, actually, uh, you know, I, I guess, um, well, should we, uh, I mean, obviously both the world series and, and, and a whole slate. Yeah, we're playing game, game six. Game six, tonight, game right? six. Yep. So the Dodgers could exciting world series so far, no doubt, especially game four, that the ending to game four was something, uh, something to see. That was pretty unique. Yeah. What's what appears to be interesting about the world series is that when the Dodgers, I mean, it's only, it's a small sample, but so far every game that they've started, one of their front frontline pitchers, meaning Bueller or Kershaw, they've won. Mm -hmm. And then when they start like their 
third, fourth, eighth, whoever starter patch it together. That's the only time the Rays can actually score any runs. And so tonight it's Snell against like the, the Rays number one starter versus Gosselin, who's not Bueller or Kershaw. And so what's interesting is not surprisingly, the odds um, have dropped. Now they still favor the Dodgers, by the way, but like we're talking about a difference of minus 170, 180 versus like minus 133. And so um, for the game, not for the series, for the game. Yeah. Yeah. For the series, I put the odds in our rundown. Um, Now Adi knows there's a big on both sides, but right now, if you want to, the Dodgers are up three to two. If you want to bet them to win the series, it's minus 650. Oh my. Yeah, that's uh, right. Wow. Right. And so, you know, you start to think like 0.75 squared. Well, 0.75, let's say they win this game with probability 0.75. Let, let's say, sorry, let's take 60%. Let's say they're a 60% chance to win this game. So that means they have a 60% chance of winning. Plus, they could lose the next game, lose this game, which is 40%, and still win the next game with 60%. So that basically would get you there. That 0.6, meaning there's a 60% yeah. chance they win this game, plus 40% they lose this game, and then 60, that the next one, that's 60 plus 24, that's 84%, which is essentially minus 650. So that's mm-hmm. basically how the math works. They must be roughly thinking about a 60% chance to win this game and the next one, and that gets you there. I think they're being heavily bet, too. Um, no, no, I'm just trying to rationalize why yeah. 85% sounds ridiculous, but it's actually not that unreasonable. Well, I, I just, you're yeah. up three to two. But I just don't give them fifty percent in either game. I don't. I don't think that's a good number. I think that's too high. Even when they're pitching, they're they're one of the no. Best maybe players. when they're pitching, but not this game. I'm. They're yeah, but the next game high. they will have probably. Yeah, I know, would. I, I still. I still think going. it's closer to fifty-five percent. Mm-hmm. Well, let me ask you guys a question. Put any stock in this. Now, he did get beaten in game three of the series, so you can always selectively mm-hmm. pick data. But at least the potential, if it gets to game seven, I mean, he's got the all t- – it's not a big number. But Charlie Morton, who would be the pitcher for the Rays, um, is 5-0 and in deciding game sevens. He's never been beat. Now, wow. I don't know whatever that's worth, Adi. It just makes you question <laughs> 60-40. It yeah. does. I mean, I'm not saying you're going to put a massive bump on, wow, the guy's never been beaten in a game seven. Well, he hasn't pitched 100 game sevens. Listen, the Rays are a very good team. The Dodgers are a very good team. We have the two best teams in each league playing each other. It's very hard for me to give one team a 60-40. Yeah, I mean, and I mean, obviously, this is, you know, I'm, I'm – I'm, I'm I'm with you. You're you know, coin toss, I'm, I'm, yeah, man. I'm coin usually toss. arguing coin tosses. So so no, and I I I would agree. From, I, I, from I the think outside, to 50, from the 50. outside, it looks like every game has been. You know, if you look at in football, there's this stat they use when they decide who to seed in the college football playoff, and it's you know game control. If you looked at game control in the series, it would be overwhelmingly in favor of the Dodgers. Yeah. They're ahead of every game to begin with, and when the ones the Rays win, they come back and win. You know, they edge them at the end. So as an outsider, to the extent there's information in five games, I would say, I don't think they're even, you know, and it's, 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 it doesn't feel that way. I hear you entirely, Adi, but again, five is probably too small a sample to react to. I so. wanted to also ask Adi something about the MLB, about something that happened in the last game that was very strange to me. Um, and I'm not sure I've ever seen it in a World Series game. So let me give everybody, all of our listeners, the context. So Tampa Bay at this time was down three to two. Um, I believe it was the sixth inning, the bottom of the sixth inning. Okay. First, they had men in first and third and no outs. And the next two guys didn't get the runs in. So now it's two outs, men on first and third. 
the guy on third tries to steal home and he's caught at home plate. So now the question becomes, was that the right thing to do? Mm. Now, I don't know what the odds are, but we could compute what are the implied odds that it would have to be like, so this is my question to you, Adi, two outs, men on first and third. What's the expected number of runs or what's the expected probability, the pro- what's the probability that you'll score at least one run in that setting? Um, it has to be obviously at least 26, 27% because the probability of a hit marginally is 26 or 27%. Yeah. And that's scoring one run. But of course, you could get another hit and score more. Is stealing home there the right thing to do? It's hard to imagine that stealing the uh, home is the right thing to do. That's a number that I don't have any a- access to offhand, by the way. It happens so rarely. And there's generally a reason for it. It's not the old Jackie Robinson steal of home, which is dance halfway down to home plate and just go. Um, that's old style baseball we don't see it it's super exciting um it generally has to do with some sort of play or the ball getting a little bit away not so no, much no, that. that's actually what happened the guy yeah. just danced and then just and then went for it went for it yeah that seems uh, I, i'd say i'm gonna use a yiddish word it seems mashugana uh quite honestly to me um i will add one piece of information so tell that, us tell us what that means everyone uh, doesn't mashugana that's a, it's basically an english word today but it means it means it's crazy uh but but crazy in kind of like a wild kind of crazy way it has its own particular valence to okay. it um like a like a crazy daring but really did you do that um, <laughs> wow uh, and uh and th- i'll give you one piece of information that that I, I remember being taught this from sitting with one of my you know, former students watching a game. Um, and they said that you watch the third base coach because the old style third base coach, when there's a hit and, and there's two outs, they temp- typically hold that guy at third. And that's a big mistake um, because too many runners get stranded on third with two outs. And that the general tendency is to be way too conservative with runners at third um, because you just don't score them a- as much as you want and you should take chances. Remember, that, Adi, that's how the Rays won game four. That's right. Yeah. Yep. It's, you take chances because the, the, that's generally because the, there's a lot that can go wrong with a fielding a throw from the outfield. A lot. And the, the throw can just go to the side. You can miss the cutoff man. Um, you can miss the tag. There's and and oh, we saw a it, clinic on that in game four. That's yeah. right. And even when it looks like the, the runner is dead to rights, I mean, really, really, the ball gets there way ahead of time. It, there's still a substantial probability of beating the tag or or something going wrong. And that's why ru- sending that runner at third is a, generally a good idea um, when there's two outs. So I told, but this I told, is different. This is stealing home. This is different. <laughs> I took it almost to to relate to what Cade said earlier, which is if the Rays were the team that I forgot the term you use, Cade, I'll use it, controlled play. If they like if they were up 90 percent of the time, you know what? This makes no sense. But you know what? They're like, we're down in every game. We don't get that many chances to score here. You know what? Go for the home steal. And similar to Adi, you could say a lot of things could go wrong. Number one, the pitcher might not notice. Number two, yep. the pitcher might throw a wild pitch because he's startled. Number or a high three, pitch. The, it might be a high pitch and the guy sneaks under the tag. Mm-hmm. Um, four, the catcher could drop the ball. And so all of a sudden, I understand it, it seemed crazy to me at the time. But when I think about Cade's point about the Rays haven't been controlling any of these games, maybe it wasn't that stupid an idea. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it would suggest that they somehow do, like if, if, if they're investing in kind of variance – that they actually somehow, you know, do 
that would suggest that they actually don't believe they are as good a team as the Dodgers yeah. right? and that they do yeah. need to take more chances mm-hmm. because of it. Right. That's right. That's right. All right, guys, let's talk about a few other sports here and there before we drive into football. So your boy Tiger, uh, 23 back, Eric, and we've got the Masters in like three weeks. What are you expecting out of him? Yeah. So- 23 back, 23 back. Yeah, no, he was 23 back. Um, it was not good. Um, you know, he was playing in the t- tournament that he won last year in Japan. They, did, they're not, they didn't play it in Japan this time, called the Zozo Championship. This is the one that tied him with Sam Snead for the all-time record of most wins at 82. Um, the first round, first day, he shot 74. Um, I believe the leader was either at 63 or 64, so he was already 10 strokes back. Um, he then shot 66, which was a good, a very good score. He then shot 71, which was not a good score. And then he shot 74, which was again, not a good score. So my comment was that like, I don't see how he gets that much better in the three weeks into the masters. I mean, at least according to the experts, and actually the data suggests this, um, his driving, not good. His iron play, not good. His putting was the set was the next to the last in the field. The only thing he did well was saves around the green. He was in the middle of the pack in terms of saves around the green, but his driving was bad. His iron play, which normally, by the way, we've talked about this. The one stat you want to lead in is when green, when you have greens in regulation, meaning on a par four, you get there in two par three, you get there in one, you want to be closest to the hole that we've even heard our experts in golf say, I'd rather have the, worst putter from eight feet than the best putter from 12 feet. It just, Mm -hmm. you want to be closest to the hole. Well, Mm -hmm. Tiger wasn't good on any part of his game. And so he's got to clean all of that up by the masters. Mm -hmm. I I don't see it. It's, it's, uh, it's fun to have the masters in the fall. You know, we've enjoyed these odd things. I mean, baseball we're accustomed to having in October, but the other championships are new to us. We've had horse races uh, in the fall. We're going to have the masters here in a few weeks. By the way, the, other the, way, the next two majors are the Masters. I'm sorry? The next two majors are the Masters because the next one next <laughs> year is in April, and that's the Masters. That's true. And okay, so we got next- two Masters in a row. Well, one fun thing about the Masters, the College Game Day just decide, just announced that they're doing College Game Day during Masters weekend from Augusta National. They're going to set up the set on the par three at Augusta, on the Saturday, I mean, there's big college games going on, but for some reason they're going to take advantage. It's very clever. I think they're taking advantage. And I, and I cannot believe that Augusta national is welcoming them. They're so protective. They're welcoming those guys on site. That is going to be the, one of the more novel settings that those guys have ever been in. The one thing I will say about golf recently is that, you know, John Rahm, who's number two in the world uh, ended up losing by one stroke. Justin Thomas, who's number three in the world ended up losing by one stroke to Patrick Cantlay. But to me, it seems like while we, you've talked about this, Cade, many times, and also when Rufus looks at this golf, it's one of those sports you have to go pretty deep to get like even 50% probability of someone winning the tournament. I'm going to tell you right now, the way John Rahm, Justin Thomas, Bryson DeChambeau are playing, yeah. those three are going to cover, they're not covering 50% of the probability. Let's get real. But those three guys are playing so extraordinarily well and every week right now that I'd put, let's say they're one, let's say they're 2.5% of the field, which is about right. I think I'd put 10% of the probability on the three of them. Oh, I thought you were going to end up higher than that. We're, we'll play this game when Masters rolls around. It's a fun way for us to talk about how concentrated the 
the probabilities are in a particular sport. And in golf, we, we always talk about how many do you need to, off the top to get to 50% where you'll be happy to take the top guys instead of the field. We're such field betters. How many do you need? So we'll come back and do that with the Masters here in a little bit. Guys, um, the, when I think about football this past weekend, I, 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 did y'all notice – you have to pay attention to college football also, but did you notice that not only did a running back inadvertently score and his team lose as a result at the end of the game, it happened on consecutive days. It happened first in the Indiana-Penn State game where Penn State was leading with you know a minute something left and they just needed to uh, just run the clock out literally – and the running back scored on accident, and they went up by eight. Indiana took the ball down the field in the last minute, touchdown, converted the extra point for two, went into overtime, and won the game. And this was all because a running back didn't hit the ground, and it was a mistake, and he knew he was trying to do it, and you could see him try to do it, and he just kind of, he kind of, he kind of mistakenly ended up in the end zone. And that rarely happens. It's just a stunning, amazing thing that happened, and then suddenly it happens again. It's just really stunning. And it's just chance. It's just football. Yeah, It's amazing that they happened back to back like that. No, it's amazing that we even had two days in a row where that context kind of came up. Never mind the fact that the running backs essentially no. did the same decision. But those were also, or, those were, I don't remember. I, I watched actually the Penn State Indiana game. I saw the supposed two point conversion. That's a separate right, issue. Right, right, right. It's fine. Um, but the difference in the Falcon game was that here's the thing. What's the difference in make probability of a field goal between the one yard line and the nine yard line? Like, and here's why I'm asking, why is Todd Gurley even running the ball? Like just take a knee. Like Mm -hmm. what does it matter whether it's a 26 yard field goal or an 18 yard field goal? Of course the the lions are going to let you bust through the line. As a matter of fact, at the end, the guy even pushed him towards the end zone. Why even run that play? Like what is the gain? I understand if you're at the 40 and you break away and all of a sudden you dive to the ground i understand you don't want a 57 yard field goal attempt that part i got but why did the falcons even run the play no i mean they, the falcons have given they've elevated like given the other team opportunities to win to like like a new level of, like it's an art form or something like that i mean it's incredible i mean i agree completely they could have just taken a knee and you know i think with very high probability won that game and it's you know it, it obviously came back to bite them because it always comes back to bite that particular team <laughs> well, these low probability, I mean, you know, we, we, we got to be a little careful. I agree with what you're saying, Eric, but if you end up coaching for these low probability events all the time, then people get on you about being too conservative. And it's, so I, 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 it's a little, there's a little bit of, Adi loves this term resulting. Um, there's a little I bit do of, love that term. Um, we, we should but, all love that term. But this is also a situation where the fans are often like, well, just let them score. Why are they even, I mean, and, and people say, oh, you can't. That's against the ethic of the game. You can't just let them waltz into the end zone. But in fact, maybe you probably should just let them waltz into the end zone. Mm-hmm. It's almost like they tricked them. Like if, you, if they had just stood aside, then he would have right. figured it out and wouldn't have gone to the end zone. But like faking trying to tackle in well, both cases. You, let me ask you a related question. I, I think this is true. Once I, I don't know the answer, though. I think I do. Once the Falcons scored, did they go up seven? Could they have gone for two to go up nine? Yeah, they could have. Um, Wait a minute. They should have. No. Is it, what's the right answer? I don't know the right answer, but it's a fair question. Um, because I think they, sh- I think they went up seven and kicked the extra point. I think right. they should definitely have gone for two there. So, because then um, that would have put the game out of reach. 
Correct. Yeah, the game would have been over. Um, I mean, a two-point conversion is definitely quite a lower probability than a one-point conversion. It's actually at about 50%, isn't it? No, it's higher than that. It's higher. So let's say it's higher. Okay, so you've got that probability of winning the game. Let's say it's 0.55 for the moment. You have that 55%. And then if you don't convert, you're still up seven. So the Mm -hmm. other team has to go all the way down the field and convert the extra point. I so I didn't even notice only, when I was watching the game, but they should have gone for two. I think that's fair. The, the, the one thing you open yourself to, I suppose, is that the other team could go for two. If they go all the way down the field and score a touchdown, they could go for two and avoid overtime win. and win, win the game. So you've got to put that in your decision tree. But I don't think it's going to push the numbers. I, I agree, Eric. I think that's, mm-hmm. that's a nice thought. Um, one other uh, foot, college football note and is saying in the Big Ten, that did you see – so Wisconsin, they lost their starting quarterback. Um, before the season started. And of course the season just started for those guys, but their, their backup comes in and just lights it up on the first game. He, he, I think he threw one incomplete pass and still threw for yards or something yep. insane thing. And then he came down COVID positive. And then the third string quarterback came down COVID positive. So in one hand, on one hand, this is just normal. This is what happens these days in sports. But on the other hand, the big 10 has this policy that if a player is confirmed positive, he has to sit out 21 days. And I'm just blown away by the, I, that, on how conservative that feels. Now, I understand we want to, it's student athletes, we want to put health first, but can you take these things too far? And does it become almost punitive? And also, is it, is it the case that the, the rules are so draconian that well, people will start working their ways around the rules? Well, the concern for me is that, is that they do what they can to avoid getting tested or faking yeah, tested. This is, yes, exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, 21 you, days. It's absurd, 21 days. Yeah, it's, it's absurd considering there's been so many sports with it that have experienced this already and have, and those, those experiences should be used to guide policy. Right. right. I think that, you know, the thing I was thinking about, I hadn't thought about the, that nature, although I did know the person was out 21 days and that they're down to their potentially four string redshirt quarterback. A um, couple of things I thought about at the time. Number one, how much will the odds change by them starting their fourth string quarterback versus second? That was one of the things <laughs> yeah. I thought about. The second thing I thought about is what happens if he gets injured during the game? Like, do they have even a fifth string quarterback? Or is there a wide receiver on the team that played quarterback in high school that's actually their quarterback? You know they're practicing them this week. I mean, whatever. They, that guy might not have gotten any reps since high school, but he's getting them this week for sure. Yeah. And then, you know, the other thing I was thinking about is that does this essentially, since you said, Kate, it's three, it's 21 days. Does this essentially eliminate Wisconsin? Seriously. I mean, they're, they're playing eight games or seven games or some absurd thing with no buys. I mean, it's just a sprint to the, to the end and you're going to knock him out of three games. But they could win those games. Couldn't they? Are they playing anybody? Do we know if they're playing anybody good? I mean, I know there's (laughs) no ranked teams OSU and PSU is the only ranked game this week. As far as I know, Wisconsin's playing all those teams in the whatever Big Ten West or whatever it is, and maybe they're not playing anybody good. They hit they hit Michigan three games from now. Yeah, so they Indiana, hit Michigan on November fourteenth. Indiana, Indiana is in the West, and they just they just beat uh, uh, Penn State. Penn State. And but specifically Iowa, over the next three, their, their next three games are Nebraska, Purdue, and and then Michigan. So I they, don't know, Kate. I think I'm going for Wisconsin still in it. Well, it would. I mean, I'm, I'm mostly just bemoaning the Big Ten policy, and this isn't the last time we're going to hear about it. And I, I, I don't know. I, I, I just, again, we. I think we can make good decisions, and we can protect the health without being quite that extreme about it. And I worry that they're just being unduly conservative and. 
And there is cost on the other side. There is cost on the other side. You're taking games away, very scarce games away from these athletes. Let me ask you a question. I, I think, I know I just looked today at this morning on Massey Peabody. You guys for this year have not yet, maybe you will, provided NCAA rankings, but could you just give our listeners a sense of like how much would Wisconsin's, you know, odds change or you know points change in a system where you're going from like the first to the fourth quarterback is it three points six points <laughs> like any, any magnet any sense at all well i don't think we've run into first to fourth before also it's much more um complicated to the point of not being modeled explicitly in college and in, in pro we have numbers on every quarterback every quarterback on the roster we have some number for and so we just kind of drop one in and, and pull one out in college, it's, it's just a much tougher. And they may have, you know, consider what happened when their number one guy went out. Their number two guy was the top recruit they've ever had at quarterback in the history of Wisconsin football, and he comes in and plays better than probably the number one guy would. And so we're aware of that dynamic in college football, and we don't bump them as much. We would be just putting our thumb on the scale. When you say going from number two to number four at Wisconsin, just purely well, putting you do the following. Scale. Could you look at, uh, and, you know, Adi's looked at this a little bit, could you look at where the person was a one-star, two-star, yeah. three-star, four-star? Say he's going to be the average of what his prior was, and that's where I'm going to put him compared to quarterbacks that have played. And that's not totally putting our thumb on the scale. Yeah, no, you're, you're right. That's a, that, that'd be a reasonable approach. And what's going to happen, Eric, is it's just not going to move the needle very much. It's going to end up being pretty regressive and pretty noisy and – you know, one player in college isn't going to move things around as much. And so it's, it, it there'll be a little bit of a movement there, but I, I, I would suspect it'd be in the I don't know, two to three point range. But if we are going all the way down to four, um, so, and you could be proven crazy because it could be a guy who can't do anything and they can't score, or you could, or it could go, it's just a really high variance. It could go the other way. Tough, tough. It's a tough aspect of modeling. It's one of the themes in, in, in modeling that, that it's re- you want to be as objective as possible, but it's hard to be perfectly objective. What else in college football, guys? The, the Big Ten came in. We saw them for the first time. The Pac-12 is coming in in two weeks, and so the field is slowly rounding out. Ohio State looked good. Ohio State looks like they're, they, they were expected to be, and one game in, they looked like they're up there with the Clemsons and Alabamas of the world. It's kind of boring but we're looking at the same top three that we have had for a little while in the big 12 Oklahoma state com- continues to hold serve. They're the only undefeated team there. Eric, you were on them early. <laughs> as soon as all those, as soon as those upstairs started happening, you know, what about the Cowboys? And they're still there. Texas happens to play on this week. Uh, we should get the line on that game. I bet Texas is an underdog against Oklahoma state. It is in Stillwater, but an, an interesting feature of this year's Oklahoma state team is that usually that's all about offense up there. But this year, they've got one of the better defenses in the country, at least statistically, it looks that way. So, you know, the Big 12 is not out of the conversation yet. Oklahoma State is favored by three and a half. There you go. And so that's mostly home field, but um, it'll be an interesting – this is getting getting fascinating to me that um, a team – you know, the number – this shows you where the rankings are maybe different than the – what their true strengths are. If you said the number six team is playing an unranked team at home – and I told you that they were only a three and a half point favorite. You'd have to say this is a bet the farm kind of game. What do you uh, mean? You know, An unranked team is only is basically even in a neutral field. How's that possible? There you go. Well, it's rankings, and and you know it's, there's such a there's such a uh, emphasis on the one loss record in college football, and you've got that undefeated that's a big zero in the loss column, and it gives them a lot of extra mileage. That college football 
I mean, right now it looks like nothing's a shoe in, but Clemson, Alabama, Ohio State are going to be tough to get out of those three places. And the rest of the field is playing for one spot. And it's going to come down to like, can Oklahoma State stay undefeated? Um, can somebody be really impressive in the Pac-12 in seven quick games? Can Cincinnati, Eric, you want to pull for a, a group of five? Can Cincinnati, they had a big win against SMU. Would they be considered if they ran it out? That's kind of where we are right now. What about Notre Dame? Notre Dame, they had to go through Clemson. This is the trouble. Could they come in as the second team in the ACC? Oh, so you're saying they'd be playing in the – I don't even know in the regular season. They'd be playing in the ACC championship. Yeah, they, they got they got shimmied over there when they panned Right. I know they're in the ACC. You're right, that they'd be playing in the championship game. So that's college football as it's oh, stands actually, at the I'm moment. Sorry, never mind. We're finally going to get a decent game. In two weeks, they're playing Clemson in the regular season, November 7th. Well, you say a decent game. I bet that line is going to be pushing <laughs> double digits. Whatever, be. they're playing a game. They're playing each other in the regular season. That's right. That's right. All right, guys. That has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We saw- You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to the second half of Wharton Moneyball. We are back to going full two hours. We've got one quarter coming up. We're going to talk NFL, football analytics. And then in the final quarter, we have an interview with uh, uh, a conversation on basketball analytics, fun conversation on basketball analytics, um, NBA players, NBA stats. So we're back with the whole crew here, Eric Bradlow, Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen. This is Cade Massey. Just having talked a little bit about baseball and college football. we got a full NFL slate to discuss as well as one coming up. What caught your eye, gentlemen, over the past weekend? Well, Eric, do you want to talk about Brady or do, you, should you I? Go ahead first. Go ahead first. <laughs> oh my goodness, it looks so. He looks so good, uh, and I uh, I think it's particularly interesting because of, of course I think actually their defenses look more impressive than than their offense even in this uh, so far this season. But they do seem to be kind of clicking on all cylinders right now. And I I, I thought I you know, my optimistic scenario for the Buccaneers would that would be that they were a playoff team, but now they're looking like, I mean, I could make an argue for men for them for the one seed, you know, or at least the top team in the NFC, whether they are really kind of high probability for that one seed uh, having already two losses. I don't know, but, uh, so talk, but yeah. talk, talk to me about Brady. Everyone's raving about Brady. What you guys are longtime Brady watchers. So, so Shane, especially, and now Eric is your guy. So what are you seeing in him that make you so happy? Like, how are you judging his performance? Well, I, I think the thing that is sort of most exciting to me is that for a while, for the last few years in, in New England, you know, the kind of story was, you know, the, the way in which aging finally was catching up to this ageless quarterback is that he no longer kind of had the arm strength to really kind of throw deep. And um, I think, you know, this year season, we're actually seeing that you know, when given the kind of opportunity and the weapons that you can kind of throw. I mean, I probably in New England, the reason he wasn't throwing deep was more a decision that he didn't have receivers that were going to be able to get open deep and he didn't necessarily have time to make those kind of throws. Um, having had the opportunity to throw deep this year, he's been you know, as accurate as any other quarterback on throwing deep. And that, that I, has been kind of exciting to me. I mean, I, I, I continue to be delighted by this ageless wonder and it doesn't even seem like kind of the obvious skill uh, degradations are happening as much as even people suspected they were. Well, let me, before I want to hear Eric's take as well, but before I want to underscore what you're so what I'm hearing you say is we had a hard time evaluating him as a quarterback because of his surrounding cast in mm-hmm. the past couple of years which I'm, I'm just, I just continue to be blown away by how often we learn this and yet we don't tend to apply it. We tend to continue to draw very strong inferences from 
individuals in the middle of groups, despite having been proven time and again that we didn't do it right the first time. But I'm just, I'm just, you know, even a, an all timer like Brady is impacted by his surrounding cast and is what is what you're telling me and dramatically mm-hmm. impacted. Yep, that's right. It's, you know, it's not just for the cast; it's because it, 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 there's like kind of a secondary because there's scheming too. And I mean, of course, if you have an inferior supporting cast. New England will do their best. You know, Josh McDonald's is a good offensive coordinator. He'll do his best to kind of scheme around that weakness, which involves a lot of short passes, et cetera, where you wouldn't necessarily be able to evaluate kind of his um, ability to throw deep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Eric? Well, all I was, what I was going to comment on is, is that um, when Antonio Brown joins the Bucks, which is not this week, but next week, he has an eight-game suspension, and he can join week nine. Um Imagine a receiving core of Antonio Brown, probably Claire Hall of Famer, maybe one of the top 10 receivers of all time. Mike mm-hmm. Evans, who's clearly been the top receiver, top five receiver in the NFL over the last five seasons. Chris Godwin, who was probably the top three or four receiver in the NFL last season. He had tremendous numbers, and that was with Jameis Winston throwing him. Of course, they still have Gronk. I mean, Gronk's on, a, I don't know if it's a run, but he's got now two straight games with touchdown passes, and Gronk looks like he's open on every single play now. And Gronk <laughs> is the fourth receiver on the Buccaneers right now. And mm-hmm. also the Buccaneers are able to run the football. And so, and since they're not turning it over and the defense is playing well, the Bucs aren't starting at the five-yard line like they were every time against yeah. Jame- with Jameis Winston. And so I think I agree with Shane. I think the defense of the Bucs has looked better than the offense has looked. And the Bucks' offense is going to get better as the season goes on. So I, I think they're an incredibly strong team. Um, they're five and two, um, but remember they have the tiebreak over the Packers now. That turned, that's going to turn out to be a very important win. Seattle lost a not a bad game, but a surprising game to the Cardinals. So they now have a loss. I think the Buccaneers have to think they've got a shot at the one seed. Um, but on the other hand, um, don't forget about the Saints. The Bucks may not even win that division. Yeah. Yeah. No, and so I speaking real quickly, we, we have, we've had Tampa Bay right around the number five spot for a little while, but we, I mean, Massey Peabody, we still have them in there at, at number five, right between the Ravens and Rams. But as you mentioned, Eric, your division rival there, we've been on New Orleans from week one, kind of absurdly so in some sense, and we still have them up there. If we had, if we had Tampa Bay and, and uh, New Orleans on a neutral field right now, we'd make New Orleans about a point and a half. Well, look, we're going to find, I mean, in some sense, we'll find out if the first week was an anomaly. Um, They're playing, not this week, but the next week, the week after that. As I said, uh, week nine is Antonio Brown's coming back. It's uh, Saints at Buccaneers. How long will how long is Godwin going to be out with this finger issue that he's got? Is that a is that a do it? And they, come they, back they, they, he he could be back week nine. He's uh, he's how doing is he, it. Isn't that amazing? They're I know surgery to... this week and he's due back week nine. Well, your finger, your receiver, and it's your finger. Yeah. Nah, yeah, they tape your fingers together. It probably doesn't make a difference. But here's the thing. Anyway, and, and look, I, I guarantee you, if they were playing the Saints this week, Chris Godwin would be playing. Yeah, wow. they're playing the Giants. I mean, okay. I'm not saying yeah. they're going to beat the Giants for sure, but. Either way, they, they ought to. They, I mean, if, if they don't beat the Giants, I'm, I'm going to put a pause on our like one seed conversation for a about, while. Let's talk about the opposite. Is oh, yeah. The I mean, NFC East. Oh, my goodness. It's so terrible. Oh, I was going to talk about how the bad the Patriots look. Oh, yeah. No, we should talk about them, too, I guess. We, well, I mean, we, we, we did. I let's guess. let's be honest. At the beginning yeah. of the season, we talked about how interesting it was that New England 
had Cam and Tampa had Brady and these guys kind of ex ante looked kind of comparable. Then they were ranked kind of comparably and now they've really gone in different directions. So what is going on up there, Shane? They had a horrific loss this past week. Yeah, no, I mean, they just look absolutely terrible on both sides of the ball. I mean, you know, I, I, and I, you know, I mean, I can, I can, I can make, certainly make excuses for them in the sense that they've had a lot of injuries and kind of, you know, COVID's happenstance happened to that team. I mean, they, their defense is getting gashed like in a way that I did not expect given how good they were last season, but they also did lose their entire linebacker court either to leaving or to COVID, uh, um, you know, um, and, and of course, Cam had his own COVID situation. He was looking a lot better before he had COVID. Um, I, I, I'm not gonna, I mean, I, I think he's, he's, he's looking so poor right now that I, 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 you know, I don't think it's just an injury or whatever. I think it's, it's, you know, they, 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 uh, they look really amiss in basically well, all facets of the facets of the game. It's weird to see them so far down the board. Yeah. We have them right in the middle of the of the of the board, but it's also weird to see the Cowboys dead last. We have them dead last now that they've lost their second quarterback. Wow, below the Jets, below the Jets at minus nine, almost minus nine, and it's just some. It's a new team to see down there. The Cowboys again, for all of Jason Garrett's failings, they did manage to be five hundred for you know, <laughs> and they were always. You know, yeah. flirting with that top 10 team. And, you know, they've got some other things working against them. It's just weird to see them down there. Let's go to the other end of the bracket. And what teams are looking good? I mean, that Sunday night game with the cards, it was yeah. cards, right? I mean, they got it done against the Seahawks, really. Yeah. And how much fun is it? I hate to say it. I hate to say it about an Oklahoma quarterback, but that's a fun team to watch. Yeah, no. And I mean, I love the entire NSC West is so stacked. I mean, I, I think it's kind of going to be interesting that you might have like a 10 you a they might there it's a possibility that all three wild cards somehow come from the nfc west it's not particularly probable because there's a lot of other good teams but oh we go just remind me real quickly we're up to three wild cards we are up to three wild cards an entire an entire division technically could make the playoffs and if anyone was to and you know for a fact i don't say no for a fact i think we're pretty confident no wild cards are coming out of the nfc east yeah right now the question becomes right so now the question becomes the Bears and Packers loser is probably one. Of, you think maybe the Bears will collapse, but the Bears Packers non-division winner is likely to be one of the wild card teams, right? And you yeah. would think the Saints Buccaneers non-winner there might be one of the wild card teams too. So it's hard to imagine that all three. Matter of fact, I'd be a little surprised if three teams come out of the NFC West. That would be. No, no, no. Yeah, I, that's not my. If if I was predicting things, I would actually predict a Bears collapse. I, I would predict that the wild card yeah, teams totally. or whoever loses yes. out between New Orleans and Tampa Bay, yeah. and maybe two of those NFC yeah. West teams. I'm with you. That has to be the most likely scenario. Yeah. Well, but I, 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 I am. We could see, for example, that that third or fourth place team in the NFC West has ten to eleven wins and misses the playoffs, while like a six win team from the NFC East makes the playoffs and hosts a game. That's right. That's well, so you, I, I love that. I hope that happens. Really? I, I mean, I guess it's kind of the, it's the NFL version of the kind of playoff chaos you always cheer for in college football, right? Like yes. where you, where you'd have like a six win team making the playoffs and a 10 or 11 team win uh, team missing the playoffs. So what, tell me about the Niners. They had a big win this past weekend. I mean, it, it was against the Patriots, but, but we have them flying up the board now. Mm-hmm. We have a 
number three, right next to KC. I mean, they, you know, they, they were, they've been so strong recently and, but they've been down. We, we haven't been impressed toward the end of last year and the beginning of this year and, uh, or at least the beginning of this year so far, but here they come again. And so again, back to that NFC West can, how serious are they for, in your opinion, against like the new Orleans of the world, the Tampa Bay's of the world coming out of the NFC. Well, here's the way I look at it. Um, so they do have four wins, but here's who they've beaten. The Jets, the Giants, the Patriots, and the one good win they had was at home against the Rams. They got blown out by the Dolphins, blown out. Blown, they got lost to the Eagles, and they lost to the Cardinals. So I'm not sold yet on the 49ers. They're at, they're at Seahawks. Here's their next, by the way, here's their next five games. We're going to find out. Here it is. At Seahawks. Home to the Packers, at Saints, at Rams, and home to the Bills. Oh, Let's see how they do in those five that's games. That's a murderer's row. Yeah, no, I mean, we will know. We will know in short order how, how – Those are all the five playoff teams. Too. So let's see how they do against those five. Yeah, and I mean, I, I think, you know, part of their up and down kind of play can be attributed again. They've been hit, you know, like – you know, some team like the Cowboys or Patriots with an absolute ton of injuries. And a lot of those guys might come back. Several of those guys are out for the season. So that's going to affect them. But I mean, they still did go, you know, they went to the Super Bowl last year, you know, so they, they, they still have a, you know, even with kind of injuries, I would kind of place them as certainly in the top 30, the NFC, but that's, again, that could be fourth place in their division. It's just an absolutely monster of a division. Let me ask you a question, Kate, and Massey Peabody, how much does, I assume by a lot, who you've beaten, Matt? The only reason I've seen, where are the Rams now? And the reason, something I noticed before last night's game. So they have five wins. They're doing great. Do you know, I've never seen a schedule like this. In the first five weeks of the season, they played the entire NFC East. Mm-hmm. They've <laughs> already played the entire NFC East. So great. They beat the Cowboys, Eagles, Giants, and, and Washington. Yeah. Uh, and now they've beaten the Bears. So we could easily argue the Rams shouldn't be anywhere. They should be a Midland team. You're right. They're better than the really bad teams. So so to answer your question, we have them sixth between Tampa Bay and Pittsburgh. And so, and, you know, we have San Francisco third. And so our rankings right now are a referendum on how well we adjust for opponent quality. And we say, we say we do it. We say that you learn something, even when you play weak teams, if you beat them well enough. And so, there's the referendum. We'll see how we do going forward. Let me also add in that I just was perusing uh, 538's ELO rate ranking, which also adjusts for opponents. That's really the, the its hallmark. Um, but it does it very slowly, and it doesn't take into account things like like margin of victory, maybe as much as you do. And they are much, much more down on the Rams than you are yeah, well, and, you got, and the Niners. You, well, you can't, you can't impress an ELO system with margin of victory, and that's the only way you can. And uh-huh. if you want to, if you want to not be discounted for the opposition, what about looking forward guys? We have a, it's, you know, we had a great, we had a, g- a great agenda this, this past weekend, a great slate this past weekend, not quite as good coming up, but walk, walk us through a couple of games. Let's make a few picks on against the line here. Well, I mean, I think the game of the week, as far as I'm concerned is the Ravens Steelers. I mean, those two have been, mm-hmm. yeah, both, both, both those teams look at, I, I mean, the Ravens obviously looked amazing last season and haven't quite been as amazing looking this season, but the Steelers look 
very, very good. And uh, those two teams, even when they don't look very good, play amazing games against each other. So that, that's the one I'm really kind of looking forward to. Well, let's, stay, let's stay with that one for a second because uh, the, 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 you're right. The Steelers have been fantastic. They're undefeated. They started out so strong against the Titans, and they let the Titans back in that game. Yep. Um, the Ravens had a bye. Um, the Ravens picked up a defensive end uh, while they were away, and they're going to come back with a, a statter defense. But you're right, over the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years, maybe even 20, it's been one of the best rivalries in the NFL, if not the best rivalry. So where is the line on that game, and what do we think is going to happen? Well, let me just take a quick look at the line. But that's certainly, put it this way, I think it's one of those games where no matter what happened in the game, I don't think people would move. Baltimore's favored by three and a half, by the way. Um, but the game's in Baltimore. So it's, really yeah, Baltimore. So it's about. Yeah, it's yeah. in Baltimore. I, unless someone got blown out in that game, and even then, I don't think I would move the strength of those two teams that far based on the outcome of this one game. Like, I, I'm pretty confident these are both top 10 teams in the NFL. Well, you know, the, the, knock, the knock on the knock on. Uh, the Lamar Jackson led Ravens has been that some teams figure them out or then the hype, these high pressure games, they don't, they don't play well, especially with it, if they fall behind early. And so it'll be interesting to see this is top talent. This could be AFC championship kind of game. Um, let's see how they do in this situation. Massey Peabody agrees with the line. We'd make it about a three and a half point line. We'd make Baltimore a one point favorite on a neutral field. Therefore three and a half seems pretty reasonable. All right. That's one. That's the feature game. That's going to be the a noon game, just a boring old noon game on Sunday. Um, what else looks good in this schedule? Chiefs Jets should be competitive. <laughs> well, no, but- Are they even a lot? I mean, I, I feel like they're safety again with such a focus on health. Yeah. Like, should they even be allowed to play that game? Didn't this happen? Wasn't there like a Pats Miami game where it's like their line was 17 points or well, this, something? Well, let me get, I'm going to get to what the line is. And then I want to ask you again, how Massey Peabody would look at this. So I talked about this last season. The line's 19 and a half. Now, oh my God. <laughs> I think I told you guys some, it was some number that the underdog against the spread, when the underdog is more than a 17 point underdog, covers like 85% of the time. Yeah. 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 So there aren't very many of those games, season. though. We Eric. Do very poorly on these models in the, he- in the strong. In the test. Head. But you have to remember there's very few observations. This is like an epic gap. Well, in, in the NFL, but you'd have the same issue in college football. You have to reach out a little farther, but mm-hmm. the same issue comes out in college football. It's really a question for Rufus because it's a point where you do start deviating from your model some because you know something's – But when I looked at Massey Peabody recently, maybe this again this morning, wouldn't Massey Peabody at Kansas City have this something like 17 or 18 yeah. at least? Yeah, we'd have 14 on a neutral field. So whatever you're doing for, for team uh, – for home field these days, maybe add a couple on it, maybe 16 or so. So it's not crazy, but also, you know, early in the season, we have a hard time. It's, it's closing. It's nearing midseason. We, you know, our, our ranking spread over time, we, we have so much uncertainty that we're really, we, as we learn, we get more spread. We have a hard time getting out to these really big lines early in the season. Cause I mean, I think that's, we don't know as much about the teams. Well, um, what's the, what's the betting line on it, Eric? Do you know the, 19, the money line? Oh, oh, the money line. Because uh, because it roughly 19-point favorite is about a 95% chance of winning. That's extraordinary in a football game. Yeah, I, I, I don't have the money line. You'd have to put a lot of money up to take a – It would be a lot. Yeah. Dinner worth of food on the other side of it. All right, so that's not exactly the most interesting game, other than we've made it interesting about whether they can cover 19 points. All right, what else you got, gentlemen? Well, um, the game that will 
you know, potentially will have a big impact on the NFC. We don't, none of us think that much of the Bears, but the Saints are at the Bears this week. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's a very important game. Very, very important game. Besides, you know, you, you play it out. If the Bears win, first of all, it helped the Saints are back to four and three, could end up then obviously being behind the Buccaneers. It gives the Bears the tiebreaker over the Saints. If the Saints win the game and the Bears lose, then you start to think, all right, how far behind the Packers are the Bears going to be? And in some sense, is the fate accompli of the Packers winning the division there? So that to me is so a I just, very. I, I, I feel like a very unsophisticated consumer on this game. I feel like there's just no way. I'm just so not a believer on the Bears, and I'm relatively strong on the Saints. I'm just so short the Bears. I guess it's, it's in Chicago. Is that right? It is. What would Massey Peabody have the line? So, you know, New Orleans, we have plus seven and a half, top of the whole league. And then Chicago, we have below average minus one and a half. So that's nine on a neutral field. And then we're going to go, I don't know, two points or so for home field. So it comes back. Chicago's got the game, right? So it comes back to seven or so. Right. And so it's, it's right now it's New Orleans by four. Yeah. So um, we're, we're, but again, we're bigger on New Orleans than most people are. Um, and we're, and we might be a little shorter on Chicago than most people, but that's where we are on the models for sure. Four doesn't seem like enough for those two teams. And then, you know, another interesting game in the NFC West, we talked about 49ers at Seahawks. Yep. Well, we're going to find out. And that one's shocking to me. That line maybe is the most surprising to me. If you had just told me, well, I'm the only one probably with the line up in front of them. What do you think the betting line is for 49ers at Seahawks? So Massey Peabody loves the Niners at a plus seven, number three in the league. And then Seattle, we have a few notches below number eight at plus five. So that's, uh, that's mine. That's, that's that's Seattle by the San Francisco by two on a neutral field. And so we put it pretty close to push if Seattle's hosting this thing. Yeah. Seattle's favored by three. I would have guessed, because I'm not as long on the Niners. I would have guessed the opposite. I would have guessed Seattle would have been favored by more than three, but apparently maybe I have my intuition's wrong. Yeah. Shane. I, I think, I think, well, you're short on San Francisco because you're not impressed with who they've beaten so far, but I do think their performance has improved over the course of the season and it's catching up with our priors, you know, based on what they've done last year. So I think that's a, I mean, what a terrific game, right? If, if what other rivalry could even begin to claim anything like the Baltimore Pittsburgh rivalry in the last 10 years to 15 years. I mean, there for a while, Seattle, San Francisco was like must watch, you know, appointment viewing kind of TV and maybe we're getting back to that place. That's good fun. Yeah, and, and I mean, I think maybe the. I mean, I, I would put Seattle as more favored in my own mind as well. But I think maybe people reacting to Seattle. Every single victory that Seattle, Seattle has has won many games this year, but every single they they've all been crazy games. I mean, they've all been like weird last minute victories and stuff like that. So maybe that's what people are reacting to. I don't know. I wanted to draw attention to one more game that I don't think would be on most people's radar, but just in terms of wild card consequences, potentially is Browns hosting the Raiders. Oh, well, so Browns managed to sneak by the Bengals last week. Burrow yeah. gave it a good run, but they got it done at the very end. So you think the, you think, so the Browns are like sneaking around with this great record, right? It's like, they haven't really been that convincing, but they're still definitely in the hunt at the top of the AFC. You think the Raiders might give them a run for it. That's interesting. Oh, I think so. I mean, the Raiders beat Kansas City, what, like uh, two weeks ago, right? Yeah. yeah. So let me just, let me just, again, I understand. Let me just tell you who the Browns have beaten quickly. They've beaten the Bengals, the Washington, the Cowboys, the Colts, and the Bengals again. They got blown out by 32 to the Ravens and blown out by 31 to the Steelers. Yeah. 
Yeah. All right. Those, are big, Those are big losses. Well, you, you we kind of bet on non-stationary, like Mayfield figured it out. They're back now. But oh, yeah, there we they go. Lost, they lost. Uh, they lost Odell. So and this was for like the seventh seed. That's that's the kind of like yeah, you know, that's right. That's we what are, they're that's what they're kind of aiming for. All right, fellas. That has been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. Come back and join us for the fourth quarter interview with Seth. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the fourth and final quarter now. Down to just me and Shane. Shane Jensen, statistics profit, Wharton, longtime colleague, Adi and Eric had to step away. We are welcoming into the show now Seth Partnow. Seth is a writer for The Athletic and a longtime basketball analyst, follower, commentator, friend of the show. We love reading him and we're always delighted to have a chance to talk to him. Seth, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me back. It's, uh, it's always good to talk to you guys. Well, um, you've been doing some interesting work lately. Definitely caught our eye. Uh, you, you, you took on the exercise of, of, of essentially ranking. and It's not fully 1 to 20, 1 to 125, but it's tiered. It's close to 1 to 125. 125 players into tiers and NBA players. And um, it was informed pretty strongly by analytics. And we thought we'd get you on to tell us what you learned. It, we, we, read, we read the stuff. We liked it. We're kind of always looking for an excuse to, to better understand NBA analytics. It, for, unless you're really paying attention to the NBA, analytics are kind of racing ahead of you. So I'm always coming in kind of behind the latest generation of NBA analytics. And so you're the perfect person to kind of get us up to speed. And I think this article you wrote, it's in the athletic, uh, the, the, uh, it was been published kind of in a few moments over the last week or 10 days, but you can catch it against Seth Partnow up on the athletic to see what he did. One to 125, got five tiers of players um, within there. There's some sub tiers. Seth, uh, before we get into like what, what qualifies you to do this thing? So what, I think you've got a really interesting background and maybe the perfect background for this. So what, tell, tell us a little bit about where you're coming from. Well, so this is, this is a version of exercises I did. I spent three years as a director of basketball research for the Milwaukee Bucks. Uh, and this is, you know, we would do similar versions of this kind of exercise. I think uh, when you're, you know, in a team setting, you want to do a lot of your work early. So when things come up, you are, you are prepared to make decisions. And that means, you know, you, you kind of want to have a rough at least a rough and maybe even more finely grained sense of what you think of and how you value players before kind of a specific uh, trade option comes up. That way you can, to the extent possible, kind of de-emotionalize that decision in the moment because you've already kind of, you, you've already done the work of valuing players and, and, and don't have kind of the, the uh, that doesn't get uh, overly influenced or informed by kind of the, the, the bias towards action, if you right. will. Right. Right. So that, I think that comes across in the article that it's not just an analytics exercise by a journalist, but it really has the feel of something that's going on inside the building. And I guess NBA teams, some, they don't quite have the, the, the draft board rooms that the, that NFL teams do or baseball teams do, but they've got some version of it, right? This list is somewhere and it's, and you're going to maybe make the first draft and then you'll kick it around with, the GM and the other folks in the building. Um, 
now to what how close does it hew to that model so now you're free you don't have to do it for a gm you get to do it any way you want to so in what way did you vary from what you might have done for the bucks or had you worked for another team in the past um i think the biggest thing the difference that if it was since it was just me i could structure it you know how i thought best and i think um that was the place i started was you know with some empirical work figuring out you know what the size of tiers should be. I think that's in mm-hmm. discussion of NBA players. Um, you, you end up, you know, Oh, he's a top five player. You end up with 12 guys who are top five players. Mm-hmm. And I sort of wanted to avoid that. I wanted to start with the, the research behind, okay, how many players are really at this top level and some research yeah. I did based on some work from Kevin Pelton previously uh, found that, you know, between three and seven players a year, sort of perform at that top level. And I'm not limiting myself in these tiers to the players who hit that benchmark last year, but that's really informing. Like I, I, I wanted to make sure that the top tier was, you know, somewhere in that three, five, seven player range. And the next year down was in the 15 to 20 player range and, and, you know, kind of getting bigger as you move down the pyramid or up the funnel or however you, you want to visualize it. So somebody that doesn't kind of follow the MVP voting every year, does that kind of track with like, is is it usually on the scale of three to seven players that are typically getting kind of MVP votes in any given year? It tends to be pretty top heavy. Yeah. Like, you know, there's, there's, there's three or four guys who actually usually two, two or three guys who kind of get, you know, the bulk of the first place votes. And then there's, you know, some guys who sneak into third place votes and then there's a, you know, a, broader group of also receiving votes kind of uh kind of listing so seth from a from a statistical point of view it feels a little bit like some kind of cluster analysis so you're saying these guys are more like each other than they are like anybody else and they kind of these natural breaks in the distribution to some extent and you and you in a way that's satisfying to a statistician the tiers get fatter as you go deeper into the distribution but you did do this thing with sub tiers so like you know, there's 4A and 4B, and there might even be 4C down. No, there's no 4C, but you have sub-tiers within some of these things. How did you decide, and what's the meaning? If you're going to, I mean, what's the difference between being A versus B versus tier one versus two or four versus five? Um, let me see. I, uh, I would almost say that, that you know, uh, like a sub-tier is a difference in degree and a full tier is a difference in kind. And okay. it's a little bit squishy, but... Yeah. But, you know, okay, these these group of players are, you know, uh, immeasurably better than this sub-tier of players, but not massively so that we we think, you know, hugely different of them. Well, this is one of the things I liked about your approach. You, you, You were willing to put your thumb on it here and there. And you're an analyst, but you're also realistic. And you had a blend of these things in coming up with with the with the rankings. Um, talk about other considerations like, you know, contracts make a huge different in, difference in personnel decisions or even um, injury situations or stage of career. Like, how did you think, what was your paradigm for how you built this particular set? So those, those are all really good questions. And a lot of the arguments you get into are people starting from different assumptions about those things. And I wanted to make it as much as possible, um, who is going to be most helpful towards winning a title next year? Oh, not necessarily who is going to be, because obviously there's pretty good players on 
mediocre teams who aren't going to do anything towards winning a title next year. But as, if they were on a better team, who, who is, who, who would have the most impact. And so that's, that's agnostic of contracts. Um, age is factored in only in so far as, you know, uh, you know, some of the younger players, I think will get, you know, substantially better from last year. Um, there aren't that many players who are high up in the tiers who I think are at an, are, are going to, drastically fall off kind of the older players that are there have sort of already demonstrated that they're defying time a little bit. Uh, LeBron James, Chris Paul, uh, notably. Um, and then from a health standpoint, I kind of wanted to assume median health. Um, so a guy who always gets injured, you okay. know, misses 20 games a season. I factored that in a guy who happened to have gotten injured right. in a way that isn't like career affecting. I kind of ignored that. And yeah, I mean, since you're kind of talking about it, you're, you're basically kind of making a, an informal projection into next year. And so I could imagine that, um, you know, obviously you're basing this upon their historical record, but you might have a, like kind of an arrow going in an up direction for some or an arrow going in a down direction for others. And what are the kind of biggest factors basically going into the direction of that arrow? Is, is, is it things like age or injury or is it something more in their actual past performance? Um, I mean, I think the, the biggest kind of directional indicator is, is, you know, most recent playoffs. And that's, that's a tricky one because it's always tempting to over-index on the most recent sample of games, which are, you know, wholly non-representative. But at the same time, if I'm uh, building a list towards winning a title next year, um, you know, playoff and performance in a playoff environment matters a great deal. But you add on top of that, you know, the, the, the differences in just the play in the Orlando bubble, whether it's the lack of travel, the different sight lines, uh, I think the greater amount of like space around the court um, mattered a fair amount uh, as, as well. So how to factor in bubble performance, like you, you credit it because it's recent, but you also are pushing back against it because it's kind of non-representative of, of what the environment is going to be. Mm-hmm. coming into to you know the next set of games maybe i mean maybe we end up in a hope hopefully not but maybe we end up in a bubble scenario for the playoffs again next year um and oh, that Lord, case, they, they have some they have some bubble decisions to make soon right there we don't, this isn't the topic for the day but yeah you know, the, the next season is upon us and um we're not out of this pandemic yet let's um, let's jump to the lead in some sense i want to talk analytics i want to learn about analytics from this exercise but let's not delay any longer the punchline, you do put six players in tier one and you divide them into two groups. Um, and, you know, you, it's, it's perhaps no surprise that you end up with LeBron James. You know, there's two players at the very top, but you more or less say LeBron's the king. But can you talk to us about these top six and just kind of briefly let people know who they are and how you decided to draw distinctions between them? Sure. So the, the, I think the two of the top four are, are should be reasonably obvious from recent history. It's LeBron James, Kawhi, uh, Kawhi Leonard. Um, you know, demonstrably can lead a team to a title because they've just done so. Um, uh, the other two in kind of tier 1A are Giannis Ndidikumbo and James Harden. Um, you know, that the, I've gotten a little bit of pushback on that. Well, because, well, they haven't done it. And you, you look back and because the NBA can be so kind of top heavy, um, yeah. it's actually the, the players who are good enough um, don't actually do it that often. LeBron James has occupied 45% of the kind of quote, best player on a finals team spot over the last decade. 
So there's, there's not that many, you know, there's not that much room left. Right. Um, it helps he's been in the finals basically every year yeah. for the last decade yeah. or so. Yeah, every every year but one. Um, and, um, but, you know, the the Rockets two years ago were, I think the year they lost in seven games to the Warriors. I think they on a, you know, normal you know a, a normal uh grading curve of championship level teams they were clearly there um i think the uh the bucks last year uh sadly for me fell just short but were you know we lost an overtime game to go up three nothing in the eastern conference finals so that is um, such a good point and shane said something about this on our show last week but you know there's just a little something falls one way instead of the other sometime in the playoffs and all of history is rewritten written. And then we think about players differently. And now we can't put, you know, James Harden in the top four because, you know, it's just amazing what, what, what minute changes result in such vastly different ways we categorize people. Yeah. And, and I, I wanted to, you, you do have to credit what happened, but you also have to consider the counterfactual a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've tried to do that. And, and, so those are the top four. And then the, the next two are kind of guys with asterisks for different reasons. Uh, Steph Curry. Um, I don't think it's so much because of, he, I mean, he was, he had a hand injury next year uh, on his non-shooting hand. I don't really think that's a, you know, a, a you know, a, a career detrimental injury, but he's 32 and hasn't been the kind of sole main guy on a team in four years. Mm-hmm. So do I think he can get he's he he'll play at that level? Yeah. Is there enough doubt that I am I I need to at least see it before putting yeah, it back up right. there? Yeah. So is he eighty percent? But you know, part of the this exercise is being a little bit, uh, uh, you know, a little bit um, nitpicky about who goes in the very top tiers. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, it's almost like those. And Durant is the other one in that category, yeah. and it's almost like they're off to the side. You know, it's yeah. not really that they're ranked in the, on the ladder. They're like. Yeah, they're one A's if they are what we they used yeah. to be, but probably not. So we're going to set yeah. them off here to the side. You know, I think the two A's are interesting as well, not least because a couple of these guys, you know, most of us hadn't heard of before very recently. So <laughs> can you talk to us about the two A's? So the I think the most pushback I got was having Anthony Davis in, in tier two instead of tier one. And that was essentially based on um, I think that the single most important thing for that that top tier player is to be able to reliably and efficiently create shots for themselves and others. And Anthony Davis is perhaps the best finisher in the NBA, but compared to other high volume scores, he is, um, there's a massive gap in both volume and efficiency in terms of his ability to create his own shot. And I thought, so that, that basically is what pushed him down. And yeah, he just won a title, but he won a title playing next to the best player in the league. So, (laughs) you know, so I I don't know what that says about his ability to be the best player on our title team. Um, uh, The other two are Luka Doncic, who, you know, is only in his second year, but, you know, was already miles ahead of of where anyone thought he would be this early in his career and just, you know, a spectacular player for for Dallas. And um, he's probably along with, with Anthony Davis, the most likely player to jump up into tier one at some point. Right. right. And then, and then um, just based on both this year and last year's playoffs, uh, Nikola Jokic um, has been a, an excellent all-star level player in the regular season and has over the last two playoff years, especially has shown that he can survive and thrive uh, in, in that, you know, the high leverage high stakes playoff environment. 
Mm-hmm. So the, 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 that kind of rounds out my top nine. All right. Let's go two more. You got you you three and two B and Joel Embiid perhaps won't be too surprising to people. The other two, I think, are two of the most in, exciting individual players in the game. So can you talk to us a little bit about your other two Bs? There? Sure. One of whom, you know, just kind of blew the top off of it in the last month. Yeah. So one of whom is, is Jimmy Butler. And it, it's funny. He, he's sort of there. There's been a in sort of. Uh, NBA analytics and uh, kind of um, detailed fandom circles. There's been a long running debate like Paul George or Jimmy Butler, who's better. And it's kind of every year it seems to swing back and forth um, uh, to the 1819 uh, season. Uh, Paul George was, a was a, you know, uh, a top level MVP candidate and he wasn't quite as good this year. He was, you know, had some injuries, was not good in the playoffs. And Jimmy Butler was spectacular in the playoffs, including um, one of the single best NBA finals performances yeah. of all time. Right. Um, you, you know, what a, like, probably the most impactful finals game of, you know, the last seven or eight years right. uh, that an individual player has, has managed. Right. Um, and he's, he's always been a player who, who has shown up well in a lot of the sort of non box score stats that, that we look at in terms of, you know, good things happen when he's on the court and that has, and it, that's, you know, been across four different teams and multiple different roles, which is super impressive. Um, so he was not a very difficult inclusion in that, you know, borderline top 10 category. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. the other, the other one is Damian Lillard, who um, I think the most fascinating kind of what if counterfactual in the NBA right now is what if you switched supporting casts between him and Steph Curry? Mm-hmm. Like in my mind, there's no question that Steph Curry is better but I all, but I then I wonder what does Dame look like if he's able to play with, you know, th- that level of talent and kind of play the way that 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 Steph is allowed to play. Right. What does it look like? And again, you have to credit Steph for being, you know, putting two consecutive all-time MVP seasons up in that in that context. And Lillard hasn't done that, but I would be interested to see what that would look like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that raises an interesting question about evaluating individual play in a fundamentally group game. And we tend to think that basketball is one where, you know, some of these guys are so much better than everybody else that it kind of doesn't matter how, you know, how well you execute the offense. If LeBron James is on the other side, he's probably going to win. Um, I wonder where you come down on that debate. I mean, to what extent do you think we need to be considering the interactions between players, the fit between players versus just the sum of their individual abilities. Uh, That's the single biggest reason to do tiers, not rankings is for, you know, aside from, you know, at this point aside, you can almost say aside from LeBron, everyone else is, is to some degree a function of context. LeBron is, you know, one of the two or three best players of all time. And he is, the ultimate like context creator in the NBA right now, but everyone else, like their your preference for who you would want the, you know, amongst that, that was sort of the, the ethic behind the tears almost is your first question is, would you rather have, okay, would you rather have Joel Embiid or Jimmy Butler? Your, your first thing, your first response to that is not, well, I like this guy better because it's what else do I have? Yeah. Right. Right. And, and that almost, I don't want to say holy, but that hugely influences uh, 
you know, not just in terms of like aggregate talent or positional talent, but also like skill set scheme, where a team is in, in life cycle, all of these kind of, all of these qualitative factors almost um, that, that really go into uh, determining the context in which a basketball player performs. Okay. Yeah. And I mean, I, I, that actually brings up kind of a, something that kind of, I, I, came to my mind as I was reading through these uh, these tiers that uh, you make the decision to kind of be agnostic to contract in, in your analysis. And I completely understand why you would want to do that. But, you know, as, as you kind of think about like building a team or something like that into the future, contracts are something that people tend to take into account. I don't know if Bill Simmons is still doing his own kind of ranking of trade value, but that's obviously taking into account kind of contract. Um, if you were to try and take into a con- contract, do you have any kind of thoughts on, on how you might do that? So if you're, I mean, obviously if you're doing kind of an, you know, quote unquote asset value ranking, then both age and contract come into it a, a, a great deal. Um, you know, there's some players at the very high end. It's like, okay, so you've paid LeBron, whatever you pay Giannis, whatever you pay Kawhi, whatever. And they still outperform that because of the, sort of the, the, the max, um, the individual max contract structure, it's, it's almost literally not possible to overpay those players right now. Then, then there's sort of almost a discontinuity and the guys who become sort of more valuable are like a guy in his third year, who's, you know, an all-star ish player on a rookie contract. So, you know, that's, that's the kind of thing that makes, you know, Luka Doncic is a top two, three, four quote asset in the NBA, because he's, you know, entering his third year and on a, and for this year and next year on a, you know, a, a, you know, almost a statutorily bargain contract. Um, And then that, you know, that also means like Zion Williamson is on a, is on a very, you know, very sub sub market, you would say contract for the next three years. So that, that would, make, make them kind of more valuable. And that's sort of a, that's almost an impediment to a lot of trades kind of happening is when a player's uh, sort of production and their contracts diverge. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Listen, Seth, we're down to just a few minutes and I want to learn a little bit about the analytics you used here. You have been on the cutting edge of basketball analytics for a while. You come to do this exercise and you're not going to base it purely on numbers, but you based it somewhat on numbers. Uh, what what numbers were most useful to you in doing this analysis? And let's use that as a way of educating the rest of us who who aren't maybe up to speed on NBA analytics. What if we can only kind of start at the top of the list and start working down? What numbers do we need to be paying attention to? So there's two that I sort of uh, I sort of started with. One is is called regularized adjusted plus minus. Um, uh, I think adjusted plus minus that family of stats is reasonably easy to explain. It's basically you are. Uh, through a, a, a big old regression, you're attempting to isolate one player's impact on the net movement of the scoreboard. Uh, you know, uh, controlling for the the five five players he's playing against and the four he's playing with at any given time, mm-hmm. and you know, just doing that in a in kind of a, a basic way uh, leads to pretty huge error terms. So then you you build in a little bit of a of a, of a Bayesian prior, and that that sort of pulls low minute players to zero and gives you a better a, a better uh, estimate, but it's still a pretty broad estimate. I mean, it, like, you know, the, the best players are going to be, you know, 
you know, a, play, a single season, the best player might be like plus five per hundred with a, you know, an implied error of, uh, you know, of plus two or three or something like that. So it's, it directionally tells you a fair amount. Yeah. And then yeah. Another one I used is, is a, a metric called player impact plus minus, which um, essentially attempts to duplicate that through some, uh, with some box score priors and some, some simpler on off statistics, uh, which has the benefit of being able to be done in sort of smaller samples um, and, and, and is amenable to being used in the playoffs where, where for various reasons, um, APM metrics, I don't think are, are good for the playoffs. So those were the, those were the two I kind of started with to get kind of names on a page and uh-huh. a, a sort of adjust from there. So Seth, I'm struck by the fact that both of those are team-based. They're kind of top-down stats. They're not built up from the individual players' box scores in the way that you know most people are running. Most even basketball numbers I've seen or the Hollinger stuff. All this stuff is like built up bottom-up, right? Yeah, I think the better the better box score stats now are built off of kind of of you know. A, it's basically built off a, you know, a, a regression of box score stats off of kind of a, 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 a our APM model to give you kind of an estimate of what the weight should be. And, and the, you know, the better ones use some interaction terms and, and, but I wanted to use kind of two fairly simple ones because again, I wasn't looking for necessarily precision in those. I was, I was looking to, you know, a, a ballpark of production for players because again, you know, situation and and playing time frankly are, are such huge uh variables in terms of you know what a player's like sort of raw production has been mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Were, were did those numbers ever surprise you so you're very well informed about basketball players and across the nba d- deep into the bench of, of every team yet when you started running these and looking at it systematically did anybody pop up as surprisingly high or low on your list um, I, I don't think so just because these are, these are kind of numbers that, that I've kind of been, you know, swimming in for, for so long that I had a, I had a, you know, the players who might surprise people as, as showing up super well, um, Drew Holiday of the Pelicans is one, is a guy who like on these metrics has killed it for, you know, a long time. Jimmy Butler has been, you know, in, in like adjusted plus minus has been a top five or 10 player in the league for years and years and years. So while those numbers might jump out to someone who isn't, you know, hasn't been been using them all the time. It's, it's, it's there. They've been such kind of touchstones for me for a long time that, that it's hard to say that any one of them surprised me. I think I had a, I had a reasonable handle on where most players were going to be when I started the exercise and some guys definitely moved around. And certainly as I got into from that starting point, I got into more kind of uh, bottom-up situational skill set stuff to re- okay. to break ties and whatnot. Okay. Um, um, I, I think that's where I, I found more surprises than than from the top-down standpoint. Well, one of these days, we're going to need to get you back and talk more technically. Just indulge a full technical conversation about a couple oh, of these boy. stats because, <laughs> well, look, I mean, I think one of the great challenges in in, in life, not just, not just sports, is to parse individual performance from fundamentally interdependent activities. And we try to do it intuitively all the time. And it's real hard. It's, re- it's hard to the point of being impossible. So that means that lots of individuals are overrated or underrated because they look 
as if they're doing more or less than they are because of the context they're in. So you're talking about developing, this is, I don't know, I don't know what generation we're on, but third or fourth or fifth generation NBA stats that are fundamentally top down. You're looking at team level outcomes, but you're massaging them in a way that you can work with smaller samples. You're improving them. You're refining them into a point where you're actually happy with them. That seems like quite an accomplishment to me. And I suspect that there are some lessons there that generalize beyond the NBA. Maybe. Um, <laughs> Pete, no, I, I, I said it because people have tried to apply like a, like an RAPM model to hockey and hasn't totally worked yet for hockey specific reasons, I would say. Okay. Well, at least conceptually, at least <laughs> yes. conceptually, we can stand on the frontier and point and say, listen and look, and let's try to learn something. So listen, Seth, appreciate you being here. We have learned something from talking to you. We always do. And we enjoy reading you. We appreciate your spending time with us. Thank you. Uh, thanks for having me back anytime. Absolutely. Seth Partnow, he is a writer at The Athletic. He is a longtime basketball writer and analyst, spent a few years with the Milwaukee Bucks as their director of research. Friend of the show, delighted to talk to you. That's a little bit of a lesson for us in NBA analytics. And that is two more hours of Wharton Moneyball. We do this every week. We will do it again next week for the whole team. Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow, Audie Weiner. This has been Kate Massey for the boss man, Matty D, for the associate boss man, Dion Simpkins. Appreciate you listening. Come back and join us next week. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. Mm-hmm.